Hello, and welcome to Masters of Divinity. I'm your moderator, JP, and I'm here as always with Father Chuck. Hey, what's up? And the, uh, and the, and the, 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 the spirited portrait of Willem Dafoe. Saw you playing with a gull. <laughs> um, <laughs> did you see, did, did you tell me you saw Lighthouse? No, I've never seen Lighthouse. Okay. Matt saw Lighthouse. It's interesting. It's like the kind of horror movie that you're kind of like waiting for the horror to start, but it doesn't really come. You realize, oh, this is like a, it's very cerebral, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And then some existential horror. Yes, very much so. But the photography is really beautiful, really beautiful cinematography. See, this is, that's the kind of movie where like, I I would love to make, I would love to, I don't know, make, but like, I think it'd be great to see a movie that's set up like that. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, real cerebral horror where you're not really sure if there's an actual monster. Yeah. You know, or whatever. And then in the final act, no, there's a kraken, and it's just going to eat everybody in the white <laughs> in the in the lighthouse. I think that would be hilarious. Yeah. And awesome. Which is why I the one one horror movie that I absolutely need to see, and I don't know when I'll ever get around to watching it, but one that I need to see is Cabin in the Woods. Oh, I forgot you hadn't seen that movie. You would like that. Because I know a little bit about what happens at the end, mm-hmm. and I, I I have to see it because I yeah. have to see just how bonkers insane it goes. It is. It's 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 fun. It's a fun movie. Because um, I heard it's 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 it's, it's, a, it's more of a comedy than a straight horror film. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's very Joss Whedon. <laughs> right. Know? I mean, it's uh, it's got that tongue in cheek a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, where like like the way the way that like Buffy played out, where it's both horror and comedy. Yeah, you know, it it came out in that time when horror <clears> movies <throat> were still like, you know, not afraid to be dumb. Now they're mm-hmm. very elevated, right? A term that horror fans hate, um, but uh, you know, they're they're very serious, and it's kind of funny because I've I've I have some friends who are like, you know, what? I'm kind of ready for horror movies to be dumb again. <laughs> you know, let's let's just let's go let's go insane with it, which is funny because. Uh, there's this new movie coming out that I really want to see called uh, Shadow in the Cloud with Chloe Grace Moretz. And it's a hmm. it's a World War Two set horror film in a, uh, in a in a bomber. Right. It's about gremlins. Yeah, it's a gremlin. So I and it, really, so it's, it's one of those. I've heard about that. It's one of those uh, uh, single location type movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I think it looks cool. It looks bonkers. Well, and, and done well, it could be kind of like Alien. Yeah, yeah, that's you know? true. Mm-hmm. Um, I, used to, I I was kicking around this idea, JP, once for um, would it be interesting to like adapt the the story of like Alien, but tweak it to make it where it's about like a group of people on an RV road trip, and a roach gets into the RV, and it's just like a comedy <laughs> dealing with like this. <laughs> that doesn't this sound like a comedy was... for you, though. That would be no, not that, at that, that's but an actual horror be... movie for you. <laughs> Well, considering <laughs> considering that I, uh, I one day uh, since living here in Hawaii, I pulled into the carport of the house we were living in at the time, not our current one, but the one before, 
and I saw it a massive, massive roach on the roof of the carport. I was like, I'm going to kill it. <laughs> so I, uh, the only thing I could find was like this, like two by four yeah. that we had outside and I thought I could smack it with a two by four. It like ran down the two by four and then flew at my <laughs> neck and was on me. And it was like 11 o'clock at night and I was running around the front lawn of my, of my house screaming while ripping my shirt off because it was on me in, in my clothes. And uh, you thought you you thought you had them, but no, Oh no, it, it this one, I, it, I, I swear it like, it looked at me and was like, nah, it's a defense mechanism. Yeah. <laughs> he said, not today. I then went back and found it and three of its buddies and killed them. <laughs> I had to kill his children so that no one would exact revenge. Um, uh, <laughs> But no, like it would be, but like, so like for me, that was a horror, that was a horror experience, but to the observer, hilarious. Yeah. Uh-huh. Totally. Anyway. Um, speaking of hilarious, let's talk about the last temptation of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> the well-known comedy. Hey, there, can I tell you something? Go ahead. Go ahead. Actually, finish what you were going to say. Then. I was going to say there is one comedic beat in the movie, and I did laugh out loud when it happened. Oh, t- please tell me it was the same one that I had. It's the part where Jesus is speaking to. Oh, something fell. Hmm. Uh oh, that's uh, that's that's the Lord telling you not to talk about this movie. It's when he's talking to Zebedee with the crowd, and he's like, "You were with that woman. What was her name?" You hear the her voice in the background, Judith. He's <laughs> like, "That's right, <laughs> Judith." I didn't catch that. That's awesome. <laughs> what was the one you're thinking about? I laughed out loud when Nathaniel goes over and checks the vat of wine. Yeah, that was funny. Yeah. Back in Jesus is like, <laughs> I love that shot. I love that shot. Cause it's so Martin Scorsese. Like that's something in Goodfellas, not in a Jesus movie. <laughs> um, I, what I was going to say, speaking of Scorsese, I, it dawned on me while watching this. This is the first Scorsese film I've ever seen. Really? Yeah. Are you, you saw, I, I thought you, I thought you had seen uh, the aviator. At least. Oh, that's right. I saw the Abraham. Never mind. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Scorsese. Did that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, this is your first um, Scorsese uh, uh, during the pre Goodfellas era, which is a significant era for him. Well, it's like, 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 like it's probably like what we call probably like my, my first real Scorsese film, right? Because Scorsese, so, yeah. Scorsese makes these sort of like big, big movies, right? And then he mm-hmm. does these like movies like this or Silence or. Or something. Yeah, and and we'll get into why this was a particularly small film, um, <laughs> which is pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, we're we're <clears throat> going to talk about we're still this is this is the last century in our uh, little series about Jesus and film that's still without a name. I thought today we could call it. I, I thought we could call it Jesus Vision, but that's sort of that's more of like that's more TV. Than yeah, movies. yeah. So, at one point, I, I thought about. Because it was three weeks, we could call it Jesus, 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 like in the hymns, you know, sweetest name I know. But uh, 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 I don't know. <laughs> Mr. Parables. Mr. Parables. Is, maybe that. Maybe we could call it The Last Temptation of the Passion of Christ, Jesus Film. I, I, or something, I don't <laughs> Jesus know. Jesus Film Project. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So we're, we're talking about Last Temptation of Christ.
Martin Scorsese brings us a startling vision. An extraordinary story. The Last Temptation of Christ. Um, and I, I'm excited because I, I'd, I'd seen this movie, but I saw it a long time ago. And I kind of had it on as background noise. And I remember actually turning it off because I was very frustrated with the accents. <laughs> Which is so stupid. Like, come on, JP. Like, you know better. If Martin Scorsese wants Judas to have a broken accent, there's probably a reason behind it, right? Like, yeah. But, um, so yeah, so, and that, what is interesting about this, I know that you haven't seen, I, like, I, I knew you saw Aviator, and I know that you're not super familiar with, with Scorsese's work. I am in, I am interested to know and how you, how you felt about the movie, uh, and especially as, you know, it's kind of like a new Scorsese film for you, so we'll, we'll definitely get into that. Can we can we just acknowledge something? Yeah, go ahead. This is easily, easily, the best Jesus film we watched. <laughs> yes, very much, extremely um, so. It proves that it proves that it proves that Catholic filmmakers make better Jesus movies. One thousand percent, yes. Because mm-hmm. no, Passion of the Christ is a good movie too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Um. But. I, you know, like we talked a little bit last week, I think it was about the, the cinematic Bible idea, like what movies we'd put in a cinematic Bible. Right. Yeah. Last Temptation would be one of the Gospels. Oh, totally. Without a doubt. I could see that. That'd be great. Um, yeah. Especially I, the part I, where he starts doing the miracles. God, I loved that scene so much. That was so that was a beautiful montage. Uh, yeah. Intense and awesome. But we'll, we'll um, definitely get into that. Uh, so I, I just want to know, like, like right off the bat, let's let's start here. I want to know about how did you feel about how Jesus was portrayed in this movie as as an well, Episcopalian priest? Well, did I say that right? Episcopalian priest or Episcopal priest? I still don't. Episcopal. Well, I, technically, both are accurate because okay. I am an I'm a priest that is an Episcopalian, but okay. sort of the sort of the proper term is Episcopal priest. All right, as an Episcopal priest, how did you feel about the portrayal of Jesus? Because you know what? Let me tell you. I'm going to start right off the bat. I'm going to say this. I tried looking for reviews on YouTube. Because I wanted to see if I want to make a video essay, and I found a YouTube channel called Upon Friar Review, ha. and it's two friars who like watch movie clips and talk about it. Usually, movies about Jesus, and they hated this movie. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in your thoughts, I, particularly about mm-hmm. Jesus. So I'm. This is kind of a loaded. This is sort of a loaded answer that I have to give because okay. I kind of have to walk through. You know, like I can't. Take I can't me be through the sort it. of person. They just, well, you know, I can't just pop in a movie about Jesus and just be like, huh, <laughs> yeah. you know, because yes, I'm an Episcopal priest yeah. with a theological education background, but I also went to an evangelical university and was formed in a biblical studies program in an evangelical university. And then I also grew up deeply Southern Baptist. Um, this is, you know, my only, my first memory of this movie was related to my pastor and my church talking about what a blasphemous movie it was and when, and, and during the call to boycott Universal Studios when it opened because Universal distributed this movie. Um, and, um, like, I mean, I think I mentioned last week that my, my friend Chris, when I was a little kid, like, he would, like, cover my eyes when we drove past the E.T. billboard <laughs> at Universal Studios because, like, you should have been look at it. 
Um, you know, so, and then, then the flip side of it is I remember early 2000s, I think, around the time of the Passion of the Christ, Relevant Magazine did a whole thing, and then they sort of did the edgy Christian thing about like how The Last Temptation of Christ is like a really good Christian movie that we should be watching. And so, but they did it in such a way that it was like clear, like, we like it because we're trying to be sophisticated artists. Yeah. You know, not like, and, and, and sophisticated film goers, you know, so it was more like the, the, the you know, a film Twitter Christian Like trying to push the boundaries of, a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there was that kind of like edgelord, like, you know. Which is like the opposite of what Martin Scorsese wanted. Right. So. <laughs> so, so, so this is the stuff I have in my mind as I'm watching the movie for the first time. And plus I, 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 I sort of, I sort of came into it thinking that the whole movie was depicting like an alternate timeline about Jesus. I actually did too. Um, so like yeah. when I see, when I see the whole bit of him like making crosses and sort of being tormented, I, I sort of assume that we're coming in like after he has sort of like abandoned what he was called to do hmm. right. and that he's sort of struggling with that. But anyway, so, <clears throat> so once I kind of figured out what was actually going on and I've reflected on it, um, what I'm very fascinated with is the way that Jesus is, they, they, they really, <sighs> such a weird movie. <laughs> really? It is. It's so but, weird. Um, the way that it doubles down on Jesus as a flesh and blood dude right. walking around. I'm fascinated by the fact that, that they chose to make the movie very somewhat ahistorical, which yeah. I want to talk about that because I think there's a there there's a very interesting thing about well I want to get into the whole conversation that we've had about all these movies around adapting the story to cinematic language because I think this is the most successful attempt at that of the movies we've watched. Yeah, and also I should be noted that it's adapted from a novel, right? Um, by Nikos. Uh, Ka- Ka- Hold on. He's Greek. He's a Greek dude. I, I had it. I, I learned how to pronounce it. Kazan, uh, Kazanzakis. I'm not going to work here. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, Kazanzakis. Nikos, Nikos Kazanzakis. Yeah. yeah. Um, Adapted by Paul Schrader, by the way. Right. So, I anyway, so um, in the sense that, like, I, I took it as this is a Jesus. Well, this is the first movie that I think is ever seriously dealt with what is written in the sermon to the Hebrews in the Bible, where it says that he was tempted in all ways like we are yet without sin. Hmm. So this idea of presenting Jesus as this man who is constantly afflicted with temptation. And so therefore, I mean, and like, what are those, what like, what are the temptations that, that we all are faced with doubt? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, like the, the bit where Jesus is talking with the Essenes um, and he's saying that, you know, he's like, he's talking about his own sins, which was like, of course I, I perk up I'm like, what? But what, but he says, you know, but like, I don't steal anything and I don't tell lies and I don't do that. You know, he says, but I, you know, but I feel pride. Yeah. But my, my favorite line in that part where he's like, I look at a woman, I turn away, I blush, but I feel pride about it. Yeah. Yeah. Which that is, uh, you know, I, I, my interpretation of that was that this is another way that Satan is like, like, see, you're different than everybody. Doesn't that make you feel good? Mm-hmm. And that, like, the question of does feeling pride equate to sin? 
right. versus right. And the idea of pride being a sin anyway, like as we understand, pride actually comes from Saint Augustine, which is you know several hundred years after the time of Jesus. Um, <clears throat> but that, that's a whole nuanced thing we could get into if we really wanted to. But um, so what I what I so that's the the depiction that I see of Jesus is that like in this movie is I think probably somewhat closer to what he must have been like. If we met him, like obviously he's not going to look like Willem Dafoe, of course but he's actually going to look more like some of the extras in this movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the but to encounter someone who comes off as kind of bizarre mm-hmm. and something about him that doesn't quite fit, but it's not in a negative sense. He's, you know, like. um He's just sort of engaging with the world in a very different way than the rest of us, but in a way that like I can also still recognize myself, right? Because the tendency, the tendency in a lot of Jesus movies is, of course, to make him very otherworldly, right? Yes. He's not, he's not part of this world. But that's not, that's actually, you know, it's funny. Like the the Jesus, you know, the Jesus film that we watched um, would try to purport that it's truer to the Gospels than the Last Temptation of Christ, but they depict Jesus actually as like an inhuman being totally yeah whereas this movie actually grounds him as a man which to me take it takes the incarnate the doctor of the incarnation very seriously oh yeah um and i think you know christians a lot of christians are very you know scandalized by this mm-hmm. but i but i think it's in some level truer to the person of jesus um, maybe not more factual, right. but it's truer. Um, you know, like, I mean, I, like, I was very uncomfortable when he's in the brothel. Right. Yeah. Partly because I'm watching this movie in front of an open window and I had just learned that the nine year old girl who lives across the street occasionally sees what's on my TV. Cause she'll be like, she's like, were you watching a Godzilla movie last night? I'm like, uh, <laughs> so then I was like, Oh crap. I watched Deadpool. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I'm thinking like, oh, it's a Jesus movie. It's rated R because there's going to be some violence and stuff in it. I did not expect that I would be watching a scene where, you know, they're running a train on a woman. Um, Yeah. You know. Better get those Bluetooth headphones. Yeah. So I'm watching. So I'm watching this scene where, you know, Jesus is sitting in a brothel, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, the whole cinematography of that is very fascinating, right? He's very much in a room full of non-Jewish people. Like they make it abundantly clear that these are like. You know, these are these are Indians. These are um, these are black men. These are you know, these are you know, and they're dressed in such a way to show that they're from different parts of the world. I love that there's somebody roasting crabs <laughs> like shellfish, which is non kosher. Right. So there's all That's these true. little things in there that really drive home that he is in a Gentile space, which, of course, you know, knowing the culture of the time, Jesus probably would have never actually done this because it would have made him ritually impure. Mm-hmm. Um, but. The idea that Jesus is present in a brothel, like on one hand, like we're like, you know, like, oh, clutch my pearls. Jesus can't be in a brothel. But isn't he, though? Yeah, that's like the whole point. Yeah. Right. Isn't that? Yeah, that's like the whole thing about it. So that once it kind of dawned on me that he's in there, but he's not there to do what everyone else is doing. Right. And the fact that he's, you know, he's seeing Mary Magdalene not as an object of desire and lust, but he loves her, but he loves her in a way that's not romantic love mm-hmm. on some level, maybe a little bit, but it's, and there's, there's a part of him that's struggling with that because of his human yeah. nature. 
Right. Yeah. And so the fact that, you know, that there's like a very interesting sort of inversion of the um, of the Eucharistic words of institution where like Mary Magdalene's like, this is my body. If you want to save it, here's how you do it. And she like grabs his hand and has him touch her. And she's and he's like, no. Mm-hmm. And we learn that she's a daughter of a rabbi and that basically because Jesus didn't marry her, this is the life she's forced to have to deal with. Um, right. Like it's all implied. It's not explicitly spoken, but it's, right. it seems pretty clear that like they were probably set to be married and then Jesus decided not to, hmm. because he has this idea that being a virgin is necessary for his work. Cause maybe she makes this whole comment about like, you know, like when you go to the desert, like I won't touch you. So you'll still be a virgin when you go. Right. Yeah. So, um, and she so, does not like him by the way. Like she, you could tell that like, she's very like. Well, she spits in his face the first time you see her. Yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of an interesting sort of relationship that people are like, aren't just like, you know, you watch the Jesus film, everyone's so like, you know, uh, uh, amazed and they're they're just like following him wherever they want, wherever, they're just like, they're following him wherever he goes, they're just like little puppies. And this one, they have like actual, you know, human reactions. Judas gets right. angry at him, he like beats him up. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mary Magdalene spits in his face. Like these are real human having conflicted emotions about him. Right. And it, and that, and that, you know, on some level, like this has to be true of Jesus, right? Like he, yeah. he had to have been a complicated kid to grow up around. Right. He wasn't, you know? he wasn't like Dracula, like enthralling people, <laughs> you know? Right. He, you know, he, um, you know, cause I have this pet theory that I have this pet theory that Jesus was asexual Okay. Like when you read about the experience of asexual people, like to me, that just sort of fits the profile of Jesus that's presented in the Gospels and sort of helps make a lot of sense, right? Yeah. And like people are sense. really, people are really like, they get really uncomfortable with the idea of asexuality. Like I went to seminary with very like open minded liberal people who even were like, oh, asexuality is a myth. It doesn't exist. Okay. And I, um, you know, so like the idea that you have someone who, because I read, I read a profile on an asexual person years ago in like some, some online thing it was an asexual person kind of explaining like what they deal with as a, a, a and and the way that they were saying that's like how much of the world just doesn't make sense like entertainment doesn't make sense to them because right like they realize how how predicated on like sex and lust and everything it all is it just doesn't apply to them so they just sort of don't fit with hmm. television and <laughs> movies like it just doesn't resonate with them and so like i think about that like with jesus right jesus had to be something like that he had to be he had to, you know, he was, a, you know, to lack of a better term, he's a queer person, right? He, yeah. he was not, he didn't fit the status quo, what was expected of you. And I love that this movie goes out of its way to point that out, right? This whole like, Jewish expectation of him having to have been married and procreate. And the fact that they make regular jokes about the fact that because he's not married, there's something wrong with him. Right. Um, and that he just, he won't just settle into that domestic life and because he won't do it. There's something wrong with him. Like that one, that one great line where the, where the Pharisee says, um, see, this is what happens. You don't get married. The semen gets backed up in your brain and right. you start saying crazy stuff. Right. It's amazing. Cause these are sorts of things that people actually do say in the real world about people. I know. And you know, what it reminded me of is like knowing Martin Scorsese's background, you know, basically grew up on the streets in New York with an immigrant family. That's like something like a Jewish mom would say, right? Like <laughs> in Bronx or something. <laughs> Well, that's why people would say things about like Catholic priests. Yeah, right. Like, why would you? Why would you become celibate? That messes with your brain. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, just it's. I, I I like this kind of. I, hate, I don't want to use the term grounded because it's such a co-opted word, but that's really kind of. It's, it's a very. He's a very earthy Jesus. Mm-hmm. 
I'm glad you brought that up because that's all, I mean, that's all interwoven, interwoven into the film uh, very purposefully. And that, uh, you know, I did a lot of research uh, <clears throat> about the film. Well, not a whole lot, but enough. And, um, you know, what really drew Martin Scorsese to make this movie was that um, the idea that this uh, writer, uh, Nikos Kazantzakis. Uh, oh, Nikki K. It's Nikki K. Okay. Yeah, Mr. K over here. Um he was presenting Jesus as, you know, he was taking Jesus as both fully divine and fully human. So when you're, when you're fully divine, you're fully divine, you're fully human. Like how would there not be a conflict? How would there not be things like doubt? Like these things would like fight amongst each other. Um, I have something written down here. So he, so he was struck by the fact that, you know, most Jesus films, um, uh, Jesus is usually represented as purely divine. Um, and that, um, in this movie, human nature can't accept that Jesus is all divine and all human at once, uh, until of course his last moment when he dies on the cross. Um, if the human nature fights, uh, divine nature, then the human nature is suffering and struggling like we do and feel, feels pain, feels doubt and temptation and he has to like overcome that human nature in order to do the, the in order to uh, um, you know do the divine. That's kind of like the the premise of the movie. And, and I feel like a lot of people approach the movie as like, oh, it's about Jesus, like just as a guy. No. Yeah, because... that's my, my yeah my pastor growing up used to talk about. He would. I remember one sermon when I was young. He decried the movie by saying that you know like he's depicted as being. Just like, you know, there's no divinity in him and, he, and it ends with him on the cross, not resurrecting. And like you're watching the movie, if, but like obviously he had never seen the movie. Yeah. If you watch the movie, you realize, no, like this movie has some expl- – I mean Jesus straight up says like I am God yeah. multiple times in the movie. Right. And like – I mean he's he, – there's a, the whole montage where he's actually performing miracles, <laughs> you know. Like, yeah. Um, and that, that's right. Like I first of all, I love that scene. I love how it's shot. The part where he's like casting out demons – Mm-hmm. I love the way that shot those like pans and stuff. And then, um, and, uh, just like, I mean, and, and I also love like, I'm okay. I want to get into what I love about this movie. Okay. I was kind of like you where I, I, I thought that the majority of the movie was supposed to take place like with Jesus leading like some kind of revolution as opposed mm-hmm. to dying on the cross and really kind of surprised at how much of it was like, oh, this is just like a fictional account of Jesus in the Gospels. Because, I mean, it says it at the top of the movie. This is a fictional account of Jesus. Right. Uh, not a historical account, not a, you know, a, a, a dogmatic account, just a, a fictional account. I was really, like, worried <laughs> because of, you know, of, of a lot of the frank discussion that he has about, like, you know, you were talking about the scene where he was talking to, um, oh, what's the guy's name? Jerome something I don't know he was talking about how about his sins right mm-hmm. that scene really stuck out to me because I could see picture myself like 20 years ago being like oh where's this movie right. going you know he's saying like um, I'm I'm filled with doubt that um, you know my sins are uh, you know I'm a hypocrite I'm a liar you know my mother and father and my God are fear if you looked inside of me that's all you would see was fear Um and that he that God wants to like push him over the edge and do that really awesome shot of like a 
It's like a it's like a truck and a pan over the cliff. Mm-hmm. It's a cool little shot. Um, I started to get really worried because <laughs> I was like, "Oh no, is, is Chuck gonna hate this movie?" Because I, I I just I just heard every single person I've ever known who I've ever gone to church or done any kind of Bible study would just be in like, "Turn it off." Um, but no, like he, that, that's, that's the, the, that's, that's his human side struggling with the divine nature. Because if you watch, if you watch it, if you watch, if you keep watching the movie, he's having these like, these like spells mm-hmm. because God is speaking to him and he can't like take it because the human side of him is like rejecting it. And I mean, I found that to be really fascinating and my favorite part other than the, the part where he's performing miracles, is the part where um, he goes into the desert. He meets John the Baptist, who, great actor, by the way, I forgot his name, Andre something. Uh, he's in a movie called My Dinner with Andre. And mm-hmm. it's just like a, it's just a movie about like, two guys like having dinner and just talking about like philosophy and religion and new age stuff. And it's actually really good. Great actor. Um, he tells them my favorite line in the movie that uh, God is uh, uh, the God of Israel is the God of the desert. Right, the God of Israel is the God of the, is the God of the desert. And if you want to talk to God, you need to go out to the desert, which I thought was just such a great line. That's so good. So he goes down to the desert, and the part where he's like drawing the circle around him, mm-hmm. and he's basically just saying like he's which begging. is a perfect circle, by the way. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, a perfect circle. Hey, is that where the band? Uh... No. Yeah, no. Um, that part, because he's like, you can tell he, he, he's desperate to, I mean, he wants to fulfill his destiny. Like, this is not a man rejecting God. This is not a man, you know, overcoming God. This is a man who like wants to be at his mercy, but also doesn't want to die doing it because he's not fully aware of what's happening. He's not fully aware of what's going, what is in store for him. It's like slowly being revealed. Right. And the thing is, is the gospels, you know, the gospels, you know, they they suggest these kinds of things, right? I mean, the idea that he like prays with agony in the garden, asking for the cup to be taken from him. Right. Right. The fact that he on the cross is father, why have you forsaken me? Right. These are things that are already, and they're both in the movie, but they're also in the, in the gospels. And you, you have to kind of ponder what's going on there because if, you know, because that, that's one of those, those are two lines in the Gospels that I've long struggled with because, you know, I'm a firm believer that Jesus, you know, kind of came into his awareness pretty quickly of who he was and that he was pretty sure of himself in his in his mission and work. Like, I don't, mm-hmm. that's the thing is, like, I don't think that this movie depicts Jesus accurately in the sense of, like, how I actually think he probably really was. Okay. But that's not what the movie's trying to do. Right. Um, and I'll, 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 I, I, I want to get into that a little bit later, but okay. I, um, but I like, but like I see, but like when you come to those passages in the gospels, you wonder like, okay, well, you know, is Jesus actually struggling with doubt in these moments or, you know, what's going on with him emotionally that he's, you know, cause he's, you know, he, he had already told the disciples that he was going to, like, it was inevitable. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to die and on the third day. He's going to rise again. Yeah. And then he's like, but Lord, if there's another way. <laughs> Yeah. Could you could we could we do that, right? And that idea that no even even Jesus doesn't want to suffer great pain. Right. You know? Um so that I mean that's just but like again, you know, we we tend to gloss that over in a lot of film depictions of Jesus. It's like well, we put it we always, you know, both the both the passion of the Christ and the Jesus film 
show those scenes of Jesus's agony in the garden. Yeah. Passion actually has Jesus saying, you know, if there's another way, I don't think that the Jesus film actually has Jesus saying, cause I don't think that's in Luke's gospel. Yeah, but I don't, I don't remember that part happening. Um, all it does mention that he's, you know, stressful and like he sweats like blood. Right. Yeah. Um, but they just sort of like include those in these movies. Cause it's like, Oh, well the gospels include, so we got to include them. Mm-hmm without really kind of wrestling with it. But whereas this is a, the, the last temptation actually sort of treats those moments as like, they're actually part of an overarching characterization of who Jesus was. That Definitely. His, yes. His agony isn't just relegated to Gethsemane. His agony is constant. It, yeah. And I think the one part where it's like really, really shown um, is when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Mm-hmm. The part where he's like looking into the tomb, which is actually really frightening. He's looking into the tomb and it's like nothing but blackness and just becomes all black. And then the hand reaches out and grabs him. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like he's pulling him into the darkness and he looks scared because it's like it's almost like foreshadowing. Like this is what you have to look forward to. Well, right, and you and and I'll, well, that's true. I didn't think about that, but like that, you know, the, the the line that came to my mind during that shot was, you know, the the, the famous quote from um, I can't remember who it was, but it said, um, you know, I stared into the void, oh yeah, and then the void stared back, right? Yeah. Like that's, I mean, that's what that's what he's doing. He's actually staring into the void, right? Um, and and the void grabs him, right? Which is um, such there's a scary also a really. Scene. There's also a really fascinating thing that happens visually in that moment that I don't know if you had it, but I, and I don't know if it was intentional, but because it sh- because it goes from a, a, a fairly light image with Jesus standing with light coming from behind him, mm-hmm. and then immediately cuts around to the black image, yeah. you can actually for a split second see the outline of Jesus in white. Uh, it's a eye. You know that it's like a it's like those optical effects. You know where oh, like right, yeah. you can picture Jesus for a while, and then every time you blink, you see him. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. The movie does that. I don't know if, it, if Scorsese or the cinematographer Maybe. intended for that, but like it was kind of like I had a moment like, oh, like there it is, the tomb, and for a moment you sort of see his outline in the tomb too, right? Because that's where he's going. Right? Right. There's that. Um, um, it adds a little bit of context to. Uh, you know, they don't really mention it, but you know, Jesus wept that that short verse. Um, and it's like, you, you know, I was always taught that he wept because, you know, he loved Lazarus, you know, but maybe he's crying because he's like, you know, this is all foreshadowing. This is like, this is the path I'm on. Right. And, and you know, I, mean, I get to bring Lazarus back to life. Am I going to be brought back to life? You know? Yeah. Well, and, and the way that, and this is also one of the cool things to do in the movie is that, you know, they, 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 they depict things happening kind of out of order. Right. Right. So like the Lazarus scene, right? Jesus weeps before he resurrects Lazarus in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's oh look how much he loved him. But this movie has him weeping as he's hugging Lazarus after he's resurrected him. Right. Which, like you said, communicates something a little bit differently, which allows you to kind of look back at the gospel and say, oh, is is Jesus's weeping actually more anticipatory? Right. Does it and does it and that gets into the conversation I do want to have in a bit about how this translates the story to cinematic language, mm-hmm. because it. It, it makes more like if you just depict a dude crying before he opens up the tomb, what does that mean? It's on the right? nose, really. Like it's emotional. Like it's. Yeah. But if you do it the way that we did that, that they showed on in this cinematic depiction, it kind of allows that meaning of that scene to come true, come through a little bit more clearer. I it think. becomes functional. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, but go, uh, why don't, you can go ahead and talk about that if you want, if you want to talk about it. Uh, 
Yeah. So, because you know, we talked about this last week a little bit more with, um, you know, with the Jesus film being something as in, you know, the guy was attempting to make a movie that translated to, you know, it was a translation of the Bible for cinema, right? But that wasn't what he did, right? He, right. They, they did a dramatic reading of the of of Luke's gospel and filmed it. That's that's what that was. <laughs> yeah. This actually, you know, Scorsese. I mean, of course, yes, he's adapting a book, so that's one thing you have to keep in mind. But there's there's so much going on. Clearly, this is somebody with both. You know, Paul Schrader has a Calvinist upbringing. Um, yeah. um, Scorsese has this rich Catholic upbringing. So they, you know, so they they're clearly drawing on their experiences of their own, you know, their own complicated relationships with their faith, their respective faiths, um, and putting that into the film. Um, and really effectively, I think, translating the story of the gospels into a cinematic language. The one, the one line that kept popping through my head the entire time watching the movie comes from a theologian by the name of Gerard Laughlin, English theologian, who's um, big work in the field of queer, the uh, queer theology. Um, he, uh, in his first book from 1999 called telling God's story, it's about the Bible. It's one of the best theology books I've ever read. Um, he, he's addressing a liberal Episcopal bishop by the name of John Shelby Spong, who was always trying to be kind of an edgelord. Um, and you know, really, really great criticism, uh, cause Spong was the one who helped popularize the ideas that like, that like Mary was raped by oh, a soldier, yeah. Yeah. Gabriel perhaps. Um, and, um, and that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had to be married. Doesn't make any other sense for her to be there. And Laughlin's great because he criticizes both of this, where he says that, you know, Spong in his attempt at trying to be feminist winds us, has us, has the story direct us to men rather than the gospel account as it's presented, where we get women who are, disciples and faithful people in their own right. And they don't, you know, as he says, where there is, you know, Spong wants to insert a man where there never had been one before, which I think is a really cheeky reference, a cheeky line. But he, um, but anyway, noting that like Mary Magdalene for him is a full on disciple of Jesus, not just a groupie, right? Mm -hmm. But Spong and others and more liberal minded people want to try to make her a groupie, whereas the Bible does not present her in that way at all. And that that's our own in in invention. Anyway, th that's all backstory to say this great line that, that Laughlin has. He says, you know, our choices are, you know, you know, our choices, our choices about this, about the gospels are we have the story that's presented or we have another story. Like we either talking about the story that we have, or we're telling some other story. And so I thought about that line the entire time I watched this movie, because there's so much like remixing going on. There's the question of is Scorsese telling the story that we have, or is he telling a different story? And it's, and my conclusion to this is that he's actually telling the story that we have. This is the gospel story. This is the story of Jesus. It is true. It, it is it is fairly true. I'm not going to say but it's fairly true to the person of Jesus, um, as presented in the gospels. And, but in order to convey that truth, the story had to be adapted to work in a cinematic medium. And I think it was very successfully done this way for us to see at least and, and at least re and wrestle with the idea of who Jesus is, right? Uh, which is what the Gospels are, are, are attempting to do. Um, but again, we found with the Jesus Film Project, just slapping the Gospel of Luke onto a screen doesn't translate the same way that working within the medium that we get with this film does. Right. And so we 
you know, so we, we come away with, I think, um, it's a, it's a piece of devotional cinema. Hmm. I mean, you can't argue with the fact that the decisions and choices that are made are from somebody who is actually wrestling with who Jesus is to try to depict that. Somebody is very devoted to the idea of Jesus. What's he thinking? What's he's feeling? Right. And putting that on the screen. Hmm. Um, and, and, and doing it in a way that again, makes sense in a cinematic, in a cinematic choice rather than, you know, straight at straight literal slap it on the wall, straight from the source material. I mean, you know, depicting Judas as one of Jesus's older, like longtime friends. God, I love it. Yeah. Interesting. Right. It doesn't, not, not in the gospels, but mm-hmm. for, for telling a movie story, that's, that's actually a really interesting choice that, that it, it would, us. it would be, I mean, when you kind of consider who Martin Scorsese is and you watch movies like Goodfellas and Casino and these like mob movies he makes, you know, it, it kind of makes sense why he would think like he would, he would put Judas in this light. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I want to give some some uh, I don't know, continue with your thought. Yeah, you... the um, you know or like um, you know Jesus is sort of like public first act as his mission as Messiah is the, uh, the, the 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 when they catch Mary Magdalene and drag her in front of him and they're trying to stone her to death right. and like that's not how it works in the gospel right that's actually a story that doesn't show up till later on in the Christian tradition it's probably a story from the second or third century that was amended into different gospels it does not belong in the gospel of John and some old manuscripts it's stuck at the end of Luke mm-hmm. um, but like it's a story that gains a lot of purchase among among uh, storytellers right because it, it really it really resonates with the sort of redeemed prostitute trope that we love in Western yeah. in Western storytelling. Um, and so to open up with to sort of open up Jesus's ministry with that moment. Yeah. It's not accurate to the gospels, but it's true to the ministry and mission of Jesus right. to have his first thing being like, you think you're sinners? Like, are you think she's a sinner? What about you? Right. You, this is what you, you know, you, you know, and so beginning his ministry from that point of saying, like, you know, you're so hung up on what other people are doing wrong. Why don't you focus on the fact that you're also still doing things wrong and let's let's change the cycle. Right. And it sets the whole conversation up because as he later will tell Judas, right, you know, if we if we start from a place of violence, it, you know, the same things you're just going to keep repeating over and over. We get rid of the Romans, some other group will come and take over, right? So Jesus is getting this, like, look, we have to do this differently. Right. That's the only way that we're actually going to fundamentally change the world. And um, and so to begin at that moment, right, again, it's not accurate to the Gospels, but it works for the cinematic story that you're trying to tell of depicting the of who the person of Jesus is, um, and so, you know, again, like it, it goes beyond factuality and allows truth to kind of step into the room. Precisely. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, that scene, by the way, the, the stoning, um, Zebedee, the, the older guy who was, you know, we're, yeah, John, we're, John and James dad. Yeah. That's, uh, do you know who played him? I, I, I recognized him, but I couldn't tell you who. That's Irvin Kirshner, the guy who directed Empire Strikes Back. Oh, yeah, interesting. Interesting. Um, so he was uh, George Lucas, one of George Lucas's uh, film professors, and probably one of Martin Scorsese's, maybe. Um, yeah, and that's I think is that if my memory serves right, that the scene that follows the stoning is the Sermon on the Mount, right? 
Yeah. You were telling me how you thought that scene was really interesting. In yeah, chat. because what I love about the, what I love about the Sermon on the Mount story is well, first of all, I love the fact that he's just like he's Jesus now has an audience and he's just like, oh crap, now what do I do with this? Yeah, he's a little overwhelmed by it. He's kind of awkward the way he's sort of he's awkward, like, right? Yeah. Which he, he he probably would have been right a little bit, yeah. but he uh, and he's like. The only way I like, I'm sorry, but the only way I know how to talk to you is to tell a story. Yeah, Mr. Parables. <laughs> Mr. Parables. So he goes into the he goes into telling the parable of the sower, which you know I pointed out in our last movie was an interesting choice that they made. Yeah. So it's interesting they did the same thing with this. But he, um, you know, goes through and and he's talking about and you know this whole thing about like well you know what's the seed and he's like well it's love right yeah. which you know the Bible has as a kingdom of God but you know arguing the same thing right so you know, it's love. That's the, that's the good news that's being, that's being spread is this, is love. And then immediately people are like, let's go kill the Romans. And they start running <laughs> off. And yeah. I'm like, this is great. It's great that they are showing what happens with churches. You know, you know, people in my profession for centuries have been saying, God is love. Let's love everybody. We're all yeah. coming together to share in this common meal. And the people in the pews are like, well, screw those guys over there. Right. Like, yeah. No, <laughs> and I I love that scene because the way Willem Dafoe is playing it is like almost like trying to tell a joke that you're mm-hmm. not sure is gonna land. Yeah, because he even it describes like I'm the farmer, right? <laughs> and everyone's like, uh. <laughs> well, you know, this apparently was uh, this was supposed to have been this was supposed to have been released as his follow up to The King of Comedy. Oh, okay. Yeah, I forgot. To so I'm wondering, I'm wondering if that element is still kind of in there from probably from that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, he's. I love the Sermon on the Mount scene in, the, in this movie because it, again, the Sermon on the Mount. Historic, like scholars are pretty much in agreement that the Sermon on the Mount was probably not one sermon that Jesus delivered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was I think we talked about this like, last time. Yeah, a collection of different kinds of things he said and during his wider Galilean ministry. Right. And so that that you know, so they don't have the they don't have the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety in that scene, but they have like they sort of play the greatest hits. Right. Yeah. Uh I, I you know, I like that he, he he the Beatitudes the Beatitudes are great, right? And the, the way they show up kind of naturally where he says like, you know, the people that are sort of laughing at like, look at this, this guy's crazy stuff he's talking about. Right. <laughs> Which that's another thing I love about the movies, the way they depict it. It's like, we've seen this guy before we've right. seen Messiahs before we've seen these people. It's another one of these loonies. And so they're all laughing. He's like, well, you're laughing now, but it'll change. You'll be mourning soon. And you know, and I, I almost cried actually at the moment when he walks up to the woman in mourning clothes and he says, Oh, you're mourning right now. And he gives her a hug. You know, like to me, that was like, that's Jesus. Right. That's Jesus. He's not just going to talk at her. He's going to say, you're mourning now. And he, he embraces her. Right. And he says, well, blessed are, you know, in the future, because you, you know, you know, blessed are you for your mourning, because that means that now you've got God to comfort you. And blessed are the meek, because you're the ones who actually get to inherit everything. I mean, I just love the way that that's, it's very hopeful and inspiring. Yeah. And that's another thing that kind of sticks out to me about that scene, the way he's interacting with him. Again, it just feels like, like Martin Scorsese is really tapping into like what it was like growing up with like a real community with mm-hmm. like neighbors and stuff. And like, he, and he, he could kind of, it felt like Jesus knew who these people were because they like lived down the street. Right. You know? And, and I think that he can capture that really well. Well, I, I love the scene. That's why I love, I love the part that the, the, the comedy beat I was telling you about Zebedee yeah. was like, who's that woman you're with? Judith. 
Yeah, Judith. You're with Judith. Yeah, everybody knows. Everybody knows what your business is, right? Because, yeah, that's in, in a you know kids. I you know that now that I live in a community where you know my windows are open all the time because and you have kids and neighbors running around. Everybody's really close quarters. Yeah. You know when I yell at my kids, everybody knows. Right. You know. So the idea that the idea that like yeah, your neighbors know that you're philandering with Judith. Like there's you're not hiding that. You think yeah. you are, but you're not. Right. right. Uh, or um um I, I love that. When speaking of just like Jesus's followers, I love that they regularly like there's that one great shot where there's that like severely crippled person crawling around with them. All right. Mm-hmm. And they show like all these just like, you know, you know, you get to see, first of all, like the I love the chaos of the people following John the Baptist around. And then those people also following Jesus around. And I love how like G- like Judas, I think it was Judas comes up to him and is like, so, so these are the soldiers like these are <laughs> these are the people that yeah. we're going to do all this stuff with. Her right, Woodstock ninety nine, <laughs> like yeah, <laughs> I, I and I, I love that. But just as a side, I love that all the disciples. There's no moment where like they have like costuming that's sort of like setting them up, like yeah, you know, to try to show like oh that's Peter and that's the oh they're there right. They're just dirty dudes. Yeah, I actually had to look up like who these people were and like who they were playing and stuff. Like yeah, and to, Nathaniel's a good amount of IMD being. <laughs> Yeah, I love Nathaniel. Nathaniel's my favorite disciple in this I movie. I did too. He's, he's great. Constantly talking about his sheep. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you know who that actor is? He played um, uh, the big the big guy with the beard in uh, The Abyss. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was the one that had the... Uh, I think he was the one that had the mouse. I don't know. I don't remember. No, the guy in the mouse is going to do that. Okay. But how about... A real quick moment. Harry Dean Stanton appreciation. Hell yeah, dude. Harry Dean Stanton is Paul. Yes. He murders Lazarus. Yeah, that was weird. That was Because that's in the Gospels. It mentions that they plot to kill Lazarus. Really? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Paul, the thing is, it's funny, is they, I mean, they depict, it's again, cinematically. Yeah. Right? We, if you know anything about Paul, you know that he was, you know, he, he talks about himself in the, in the New Testament as having been, you know, a persecutor of the church. He's this radicalized person, right? So he's a terrorist. I mean, that's that's how Paul talks about himself. But if you know Paul historically, he was a, he was probably a kid at the time that Jesus was running around. He was probably in his own rabbinical school. He probably never actually saw Jesus when he was running around on Earth. Um, but he studied under one of the one of the one of the great um, some of the great teachers of his day. He's a very educated, really educated, probably like somewhat upper crust dude. Um, them having Harry Dean Stanton play him as like a dirty assassin yeah. is an interesting choice. But it again, it works true to the character of Paul that if you want to depict him in this movie is you want to show him as a guy like when you have him later in the street corner or in the in the in the in the courtyard, you know, preaching about the risen Jesus, which is another great scene in the movie, by the way. Yeah. Um, to have him uh, to have him doing that and talking about like what an awful person he was well showing him as the dude who paid Judas you know contracted Judas to go kill Jesus at the beginning of the movie to have him as sort of like the guys running around telling all these zealots to kill these people and then also having him kill Lazarus yeah like again right within the, the limits of the two hour or three hour runtime that you have like it's a great way to depict the character yeah. and that's why it works as a cinematic adaptation it's not scripturally accurate it's not historically accurate but it's still true i think that's a good jumping off point i, I hope we put a pin in harry dean saying because i would love to talk to the, about, about that scene again um that's a good jumping off point talking about to talk about judas mm-hmm. because i feel like that's a very that's a very important role in this movie um mm-hmm. i think you know martin scorsese himself is is uh himself fascinated by judas betrayal is a very um 
constant thing in his films. Um, I know it was you broke my heart. Well, no, that's that's Francis Coppola. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's Godfather. <laughs> but no, See, it's always... yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it, it happens in Goodfellas too. Lots, a lot of betrayal happens in Goodfellas. A lot of betrayal. Oh my God, the movie casinos all betrayal. Um, but I, I have this uh, book um, called Conversations with Scorsese that my friend Lisa sent me one after I had my little stint in the hospital. Um, and he talks a good bit about Last Nation of Christ in this movie. He's, it's like basically just like a conversation with um, Richard Schickel, who's a, a film critic. Um, so he's talking about Judas in this little passage I want to kind of read to you, Chuck. Okay. Okay, so he says... Um, Let's see. All right, so he and Richard Schickel are talking about Judas. And uh, Martin Scorsese says, there's no doubt that was the key. That's why I thought it was so interesting in What's-His-Face's book that Judas is almost the hero. The whole concept was that the betrayer, Judas, was the key player. Because if there is to be a sacrifice and if there is to be this extraordinary redemption, then everybody around Jesus is part of a plan. Nobody's to be blamed. Nobody's to be cursed. It's all got to happen. And by the way, Judas, you're the one who's going to have to be the fall guy. He's the only one Jesus can trust, so he's got to betray Jesus. And make him understand that he would be damned for the rest of eternity as the worst person in the world. Yeah, that's... And I will say, part of our fascination with Judas in the Western world as a character... Um, largely has to do with um, Dante, right? Dante is the one who depicts him as being in like the deepest circle of hell, right? It's like, yeah. it's like him and Brutus or like the like him, Brutus and one other person, right? The only three people in like the... Yeah, three people have been just constantly being chewed on by Satan. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. the Gospels, the Bible at no point depicts Judas like that right they never i mean they depict him i mean i think that's i think at one point he's referred to as a son of perdition right but he he is the gospels tend to actually portray him more as a guilt-ridden like he's a he's unscrupulous he's a deceiver um but in the end he's guilt-ridden over what he's done um i you know there's a, there's a you know there's that there was that gospel of Judas that was uncovered which is a Gnostic book that purported that Judas actually knew the full story right and it's clear that this guy is drawing on those kinds of traditions for the last temptation of Christ probably um, you know the whole idea that Judas should be punished because you know the, the people people who the people who look at the, the story the, the way Jesus, Judas is depicted in by Dante which a lot of people assume is the Christian version of Judas. Yeah. Um, that sees it as sort of unfair that he should be punished for all of eternity because he did the thing that was necessary for human salvation. Like, I think that's a fair criticism. Mm -hmm. Um, for the record, I don't think Judas is in hell because I kind of don't know. I don't think that anybody's in hell. Um, or he's not going to spend an eternity there. Um, I, I don't think I got a chance to talk about my little theory about Judas. Have I? I don't think so. I don't believe you have. So that I, I basically see him as like the Neville Longbottom, of Jesus. Okay. Um, do you know, I mean, do you know, do you know what I mean by that? Like, if you know, yeah, the Harry the, Potter well, he story, was supposed to be like the chosen one or something, but, or if like if Harry, been, if Harry Potter yeah, he had died. Easily, yeah. Yeah. He could have easily been, cause they were both born on the same day yeah. and they both fit the, they both fit the, the trappings of the, of the, um, prophecy. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it just happened to be that Voldemort chose Harry over Neville, right? Which I would love to see an alternate Harry Potter movie where Neville Longbottom is actually the oh, chosen one. Dude, I'm sure there is scores of fan fiction all about it. Yeah, I'm never going down that route. <laughs> uh, that, yeah. Yeah. But um, but anyway, no, because the reason I come up with this is a few years ago, I was you know when I when I was living in Boca Raton. Um, I was very attentive to the fact that I lived in a Jewish community. And so when I would, when I would do my sermon prep and, and everything, I would draw a lot more from the old Testament just to make sure. Cause it's, you know, obviously Christians have had a very complicated relationship with, uh, our relationship with our Jewish, uh, as, as we would say here in Hawaii, Jewish members of our Ohana. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I learned during that time was that people are named in Jewish culture like names are names are significant, right? In the scriptures, names are always significant, just as well as in history, names are in, in like actual real world settings, names are significant. But pretty much throughout the Bible, any Jewish writer who has a name, who picks a name, who has a name for something, like they're, that name is intentional, right? Like mm-hmm. they're and you know whether you say it's a literary convention or it's the work of God, either way, the name is intentional. So the most famous Judas that would have been known to Jewish culture at the time was um, Judas Maccabee. Um, who was the leader of the Hasmonean revolt um, that is remembered during the festival of Hanukkah. Now, most Protestant Christians know nothing about Judas Maccabee because we don't have the Apocrypha. But given that more than half of the church around the world has the Apocrypha, uh, Judas Maccabee is an important figure and culturally would have been an important figure. So, Judas is named. So I've I've long wondered was Judas named after Judas Maccabee, considering that Judas is depicted consistently as a zealot type figure. Um, um, I think that there's some enough grounds to suggest this little. This is my this is my little take on Judas. Okay. What if Judas saw himself as a messianic figure? Because uh, Judas Maccabee was was seen as a messianic figure. He was somebody who was chosen by God to rout, to, 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 to you know rouse up Jerusalem and get them um, against the, the Greeks at the time who desecrated the temple. So did Judas grow up his whole life hearing these stories about Judas Maccabee and what a hero he was? And did Judas sort of fancy himself in that? And that he sees this movement happening with this Jesus figure. And so he attaches himself to this movement thinking, all right, here's the guy – we're going to go out in a blaze of glory. Like we're going to, re- we're going to, we're going to end it all. And then Jesus starts talking about this love and forgiveness stuff. And then Jesus starts talking about how, you know, he's got to die and he's, but I'm going to, don't worry, I'm going to raise again on the third day. And Jesus is like, no, 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 this guy's got like a suicide pact. Like this guy's got it wrong. He's yeah. done something wrong. And on top of that, like he's just bringing down the ire of the Romans on us. He's not actually going to transform or change anything. And so does Judas instead, you know, decide to betray Jesus because he thinks either the betrayal is going to be the end, the, the moment that's going to get Jesus to sort of like act, or is it going to be the thing that gets Jesus out of the way? And then Judas can maybe be like, yeah, maybe I can take over the movement after he's done and we can do this the right way. Hmm. Um, and that once Judas realizes what's happening, that's when he feels guilty and tries to undo it. He realizes he's screwed up. Um, but that's my little, that's my little literary theory about Judas. I like Um, it. I think it's interesting. Um, you know, that's based solely off the fact that his name is shared with another, but like in all the gospels, right? That's an important thing. Jesus is named after Joshua, right? Joshua is Moses's successor and he's the one who, who liberated it, you know, liberated the, the promised land from, from corruption. Right. So Jesus is doing the same thing, right? He's liberating the promised land from corruption 
um, from pagan Roman influence. That's that idea. He's spiritual. He's, he's seeking to spiritually liberate the promised land. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then on top of that, Jesus' dad is Joseph, who is in Matthew's gospel depicted as in very similar uh, capacity to Joseph the dreamer, because Joseph has dreams, winds up in Egypt, all these kinds of things, right? So there's all these motifs that are going on in the gospels with these names. And so you have somebody named Judas who betrays Jesus, and he's named after the guy who was like the most recent messianic figure that they would have known. Like, I, I just don't see that as totally coincidental. Right. Um, and I think it adds layers to the to the figure of Judas. Um, I don't know that I buy the idea that Judas was just some like completely corrupt, evil person. I think he or was, that he just wanted he 30 a, pieces of silver. Yeah. yeah. Right. And that's, I mean, that's led to some really messed up anti-Semitism, right? Yeah. I mean, cause you know, Judas is also a word for Jew, right? That's a, it, it, it can refer to a Jew. And there has been some scholars out there who make the one who wonder if later Christian tradition has sort of given him this name right. to like, you know, he's the, he's like the bad kind of Jew. Cause he's, he's the Iscariot Jew, not the other kind, you know what I mean? Hmm. Or, or whatever. But, um, there's well, also an interesting theory, but I, I love Harvey Keitel's portrayal of him. Um, yeah. he's just so like gritty working class. Yeah. <laughs> he's, He's, I, I love that the I love that they took the time to show him actually fighting Romans, yeah. just like brawling with them. That was so cool. Mm-hmm. I loved it, um, and I love the relationship we, he has with them. You know, the first time we see them together, he like, like he beats him up. He beats up Jesus uh, for being weak. He said, or because he's because he's building crosses for the Romans. Yeah, that's one thing we haven't even mentioned yet. <laughs> yeah, I know. That, that's uh, and, and, Jesus' job as carpenter is that he makes the crosses for the Romans. He's been conscripted by the Romans to build crosses. Yeah, and he carries he carries the crosses for them, which I thought mm-hmm. was interesting. Uh, which, you know, I think any other person would probably... I think an unsophisticated view would be like, oh, that's on the nose. Like, well, I mean, it's supposed to be. Like, he's not trying to sneak one by you, you know? Like, it's all kind of be... It's, uh, everything is supposed to be revealed to him. That's, like, the whole point. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and the first shot we see of Jesus is he's got scars on his back because he's whipped himself, right? So he's in that sort of like, right. you know, self-flagellating kind of phase. Yeah. But he's got <clears throat> he's whipped on his back, and he's laying himself out to measure the crossbeam, yeah, right, to make right. sure that it's wide enough for for arms. So it's like. Yeah, like the the point. It's foreshadowing, right? Exactly. You know, welcome to to cinema. (laughs) Welcome just to basic storytelling one hundred and one. It's like going to. uh, I know one of our our favorite movie critic pointed this out. It's like it's like going into a building and being like, "Hey, this this house is being held up by support beams." Yeah, yeah, it is. (laughs) Um, so uh, no, I just I love I love his portrayal. I love that. Jesus is kind of taking away, I think, some of what of Judas is like. Like he's he's kind of learning from Judas as well. And I because I think the whole the part where he comes back from the desert and he takes his he he takes his heart out of his body, which was intense. I wasn't I wasn't expecting that scene. And he says, you know, I used to believe in love. I now believe in this. He holds up the axe. Um. I feel like, you know, that that's a little bit of like Judas's influence, you know, like, like he's kind of showing Jesus like the, the importance of some of the zealotry that he's, he's partaking in because, you know, 
I had always imagined like that part was supposed to be like, oh, this is the part where he like uh, he's gonna like lead the revolution instead of sacrificing himself. But no, the like it's interesting because like leading up to that scene, Jesus is talking is preaching about love, and he's kind of doing it in sort of a half in sort of a kind of a half-assed way. Um, but once he goes into the desert, he's far more confident about it, and he's far more like, you know, this is gonna be love, but it's not like anything you've ever seen before. We're gonna get we're gonna get real here. And what's usually done in like this sort of like, um, you know, celebratory with like contemporary gospel music playing where he performs his miracles. It's almost like a like a war montage mm-hmm. where he's performing those miracles. And I, I feel like I'm drifting well, away from what I'm talking about Judas. Well, when he's exercising the demons, he looks like he's snapping their necks. Yeah, that's why I love that scene so much. <laughs> Which it's, is actually, I mean, earlier they had shown, they showed Judas actually snap a Roman's neck, don't they? I think they do, yeah. When he was fighting um, but um, what what I love about what I love about that too is that it it captures what some Roger Ebert said that um, in his review of the movie that um, his nineteen eighty eight review yeah that you know people are bothered by the depiction of Jesus but say you know like there are four gospels that show him a little bit differently right it's like so how can we think <laughs> that like one movie is ever going to act you know one story is ever going to actually accurately you know capture this this individual and I like that point because. You know, we love the story. We love, you know, we actually have Jesus in this movie say this, right? You know, those who live by the sword, you know, are going to die by the sword, right? You know, right. like I've, I've not come to bring a sword, right? I've come to bring peace. But one of the other gospels actually has Jesus saying the exact opposite of that. Don't say that I have come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. I've come to set mother against, you know, daughter and father against son. Yeah. You know, and families will be ripped apart on account of me, right? And he so, says that in the movie too. Yeah, so these, so you know, Jesus is. There's times where you read the Gospels that Jesus seems to be contradictory. Yeah, and you know, and that's. I think that this movie does a really good job of, of capturing that element, right? He's 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 all about love. He's talking about love, but then he's also like, hey, look, I've got the axe in my hand. And you know? that's the thing where you you were talking about the cinematic language, where it's like you're taking these contradictory things and you're repurposing repurposing them into like a, a an arc. So he's 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 he goes from sort of like not fully confident in who he is and trying to preach love and not really know how to do it to being like, he becomes a little bit like Judas when he comes back mm-hmm. from the desert because he says, you know, I used to believe in love and now I believe in this. He holds up the ax, but what he's doing, I mean, he is still preaching love, but it's like a, you know, it's like a more, it's, it's like a tough love in a way. And, um, you know, it's just, you bring up like a, the, the gospels and stuff like before Martin Scorsese was, told about this book he 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 apparently had always wanted to make a movie about jesus and that his original plan was to make a movie about the gospels and he wanted to show the sort of juxtaposition of like each jesus like each like narrative and stuff and how they contradicted each other Mm -hmm. um but when he saw when he read this book he was like oh this is like more of like what i want to do is talk about jesus and like uh, the 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 struggle between like the human nature and the divine nature uh so that's interesting um but yeah, I, I think I think that's interesting how much he he gravitates towards Judas, and making him an important figure. And you know, just what like what he said in, in, the, in this in this passage that uh, he's he's the fall guy. <laughs> I love that he makes he makes out Judas to be the fall guy because like the fall mm-hmm. guy and like any kind of mob movie, it's like the fall guy is the one who's like really taken care of. Like you go to jail for us when you come out, you're gonna live like a king. <laughs> you know, we're gonna make sure that like you know it's all paid for. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting, you know. Um, and, and I, and I, 
Well, and, and that and that element, knowing that piece of the sort of cinematic heritage around the idea of the fall guy to in mob movies, yeah. that helps drive home just how pissed off Judas is at the end. Yeah. When he comes to the ailing, dying Jesus in his old man deathbed. It's such a great scene. So and he's good. just like, you left me hanging. Like, yeah. I took this fall for you, and then you did nothing with it. Right. Now you're running off, and you're... And I love where he was like, you know, Jesus is like, but the angel said, you think that's an angel? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, okay, we got to get to that part before we run out of time, because that's... I think that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's what makes this movie this movie. We've talked a lot about sort of like, you know, Martin Scorsese's interpretation of Jesus, but what really m- sets this movie apart is a part where he goes and he dies on the cross after meeting with uh, David Bowie. Um, oh, we didn't even talk about David Bowie. <laughs> it's so great. Originally, it was supposed to be Sting, by the way. Was it? I didn't know that. Um, but yeah, I love that they, they kind of totally skip his trial and just skip straight to like he's going to meet Pontius Pilate. And uh, I, love, I love the way Pilate is depicted in this movie. He's very like, he does not give a crap. Like, mm-hmm. he does not care. And I love the way David Bowie plays him. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's, I, I kept thinking like he was going to pull out like that little crystal ball and laugh. just like, <laughs> Jesus, forget the baby. Come with me. Yeah. Be my goblin queen. Yeah. Um, he doesn't shoot the scenery at all. No, 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 no. He's very subdued. Very, very. Um, what did you think about that scene? Cause I know you, we, we talk a lot about pilot during the series and how he's depicted in each movie. And I was, I was curious about how you think about uh, David Bowie's depiction. The, uh, knowing what I know about pilot, you know, about his his sort of disdain of the Jews and he sort of hates his post because he knows that he's been promoted out to have David Bowie depict him as like, why am I being he's like he's like messing with his horse. Yeah, like he can barely be bothered to talk to Jesus. He's just sort of like, oh, now you're not talking to me. He's like, you yeah. really should say something. Right. But his just this he feels so put upon like, really, we're, we're doing he's like, I just I really don't care. Like, let's just. And I, and I like that they don't go through the whole thing about where, like, you know, this attempt to try to make Pilate sympathetic or whatever. He's just like, ah, fine. Like, I cannot really be bothered with this. This is a really trivial matter among you and your own people. And, like, right. You know, and he's, and he, oh, it's also, it's kind of like quietly, you know, making sort of sly fun of him. Like, oh, yeah, you're, of course, your kingdom's not of this world, right? It's not here. <laughs> of course it's not. Yeah. You know? And um, but the line that I love is the way they interpret the the they inter- they reinterpret Golgotha, um, because you know it's called the place of the skull, and a lot of art depictions make it where it's like a hill that looks like a skull. Yeah. yeah. But his thing is like there are three thousand skulls up there, mm-hmm. and I wish that your people would go up there and count them sometime because maybe they would learn something, but great. probably not. Great line, such a great I, line. That's that Paul Schrader one, Calvinist friggin' yeah. yeah that's oh, and that other line is, you know, you're almost more dangerous than the zealots. Yeah, I love that because he knows this, but like love, murder, it's like the either way you want things to change, and we don't want them to change. Mm. (sighs) Yeah, and I mean just one little like five minute scene or whatever, and it really sets up the entire political struggle of what's going on with, right? Like, you know, the fact that Pilate's statue is, or I guess it's Caesar's statue, not Pilate's statue, but like Caesar's statue is around and it. And it, you know, sort of hangs over all the scenes and stuff. But it, you know, that that the only real interaction with the Romans is that one scene with Pilate. And it says more than any of these other movies we watched that have tried to, like, browbeat you with the message. Yeah. Says. Right. Um, and so he he 
he becomes crucified. He gets crucified. And that's when, I mean, this is when the movie goes off the rails. Like this yeah, is, this is, shows up. this is the last temptation of Christ. And of course, this is where we find out the last temptation of Christ is, you know, if, if life is a gift that God gives you, then the temptation would be for Jesus to take that gift, be a, to be a normal person. And can I, uh, two things I want to talk about here. First, yeah. I want to say, I knew that it was coming Yeah. because the, the sort of the storyline has been spoiled for me a long time ago. I knew it was coming and I was still like on the edge of my seat being like, what? Like as she's pulling the nails out of him, like what? Like this is really yeah. like I was still shocked to see it. The other is I just want to take a moment to appreciate the real deep cut ways that they depict Satan in this movie. Oh, definitely. Um, first of all, right? Like the Bible is, you know, the gospels have, you know, Satan quoting the Bible at Jesus as a way to sort of convince him to give into these temptations. So to have Satan being like, you know, of course you don't know it's Satan, right? I was saying like, oh, it's just like with Abraham and Isaac. You know, the way that he was spared, like that's what's going on that's here. Right. And it's like, which is a great inversion because theologians have used that story as a way to talk about the crucifixion for a very long time as a way to say like this is a foreshadowing of the cross. So like that's a deep scholarly thing that they're doing with that little bit. But the other thing is going back to the other temptation, the other instances where Satan has appeared, right? First we see the snakes and you're like, oh yeah, there's Satan. Voiced then by the Barbara lion. Hershey who plays Mary Magdalene. Yeah. yeah. But then you've got the, but then you've got the lion. Aslan. Which, yeah, <laughs> right. Aslan. Which you could you could make the comment of Aslan, but you could also think, oh, but the, our, our enemy, the devil, goes about as a roaring and ravening lion. So like that's an image that can go either way, right? Lord is a lion, the devil's a lion. Both images are played up in the Bible. But the one that got me was the friggin' pillar of fire in the wilderness. Yeah. Holy crap! Like that's the that's the image that God guided the Israelites in the wilderness is a pillar of fire. And so for Satan to appear as like the class, it was right, especially right after John the Baptist is like God's, you know, you know. Israel's God is a God of the desert, yeah. right? And then, of course, but don't worry, but be careful. God's not alone out there. Which is that's right. Yes, that's a good one. Yeah. Line. Um, you know, the fact that, like, they, that they went through the deep cut stuff to have the devil appear in these really rich scriptural images in a movie that supposedly is such a blasphemy against the Bible yeah. um, shows that like, these are people who knew their material. And so to have, and then you have this you know, innocent looking child as the guardian angel. And it's great because he, he says that line when he's in the desert, Satan says in line, we'll, we'll meet again. Uh-huh. And then the little girl shows up and she's like, uh, she, she convinces Jesus that he's, that she's the guard. She's a guardian angel. He pulls out the nails on the cross and takes him down. Kisses his wounds. Kisses his wounds. They walk into this beautiful grassy area. Mm-hmm. A and, garden, which meant to evoke the Garden of Eden, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like the garden where Jesus. It's, it, that's the interesting thing too, is that in the in the Gospel of John, it's in a garden where Jesus encounters Mary. Um, actually, that comes from my little thing comes from this book. Oh, okay. This Gerard Laughlin, the theologian I mentioned. This is yeah. also an excellent theological book. Um, but he talks a little bit about the Passion of the Christ, and he points out. I mean, the Last Temptation of Christ, and he points out that you know. The tradition is, you know, G- you know, Jesus meets Mary Magdalene in the garden outside the tomb, and she w- embraces him. She wants him to stay, and he says, you know, don't hold on to me because I'm ascending. You can't hold on to me anymore. Like, you know, this is – and as he points out, the intimacy with Jesus is now found through the Eucharist and through the community of the church, and that's what Jesus is trying to get Mary on board with rather than just holding on to him as his one localized being. Right. But as he says, but the last temptation subverts this where she does embrace him, yeah. and she does hold on to him. Because they get married, right in the um, garden, 
Like it's, it's so it's interesting. And um, I just also want to point out too. I love that when she's dressing his wounds, it's a mirror of the of the Pieta. Which what what is that? That's the uh... the Pieta is the famous statue from Michelangelo where um, okay. where Mary is holding Jesus as he's been taken down from the cross, and it's been like aped in so many comic books. Like, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So in those, in most depictions, Jesus's head is in Mary's um, left arm. No, 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 right arm. Um, and so, um, and she's holding him off the cross, but in, in, um, in the last temptation, Mary Magdalene is holding him, but he's in her left hand. So it's a mirror of what was happening. Interesting. Uh, so it's, 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 you know, my art mind was like, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So she's like dressing his wounds and, you know, of course you have that scene, which is of course, I think the one reason why everyone got so mad at this movie. Because they have sex <laughs> because they're married and they want to have children and families, you know. Right. Um, Which, by the way, I think the, the people who get upset at that scene miss the point that it's supposed to be upsetting. Yeah. Because it's supposed to feel wrong. You're supposed to watch this and be like, well, no, 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 no. That's not the story. <laughs> yeah. But also, I, sh- I should also point out, like, tastefully done, by the way. Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not gratuitous. Right. I think Martin Scorsese like knew what he was doing. Like he 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 wasn't going to make it graphic or whatever. Like it wasn't like Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? would love, I would love to sit down with Willem Dafoe and just be like, okay, what was going through your mind? Being like, okay, I'm playing Jesus while having sex. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the scene is, I mean, it's so fascinating. And then the what I I didn't know that this happened that Mary Magdalene dies, mm-hmm. uh, killed by God. I think is that was that was am I. That's what the angel says, yeah. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's what the angel tells her because like she's she's, I forgot what she was doing, but she looks up and then just like a bright, brilliant light just fills the screen, and that's when how you know like she was killed somehow, some way, I don't know. And then he moves on and, and marries um, Mary and Martha of Bethany. Mary and Martha of Bethany, right? Which, which is, is interesting because the tradition has long been to conflate Mary Magdalene with Mary of Bethany. And I think that is that when they go into town and meet. Uh, Paul. Yeah, he meets Paul, and that's when he finds, you know, Paul is basically like, I invented this. Yeah, because he's preaching the about... The world needs it. Yeah, he's, pre- he's preaching about how Jesus died on the cross and then was risen again. He was like, you're lying to these people. He takes them aside. He's like, you're lying to them. You're, you can't tell them this stuff. And he's like, no, they need this. They need which, the resurrected Christ. Which, inter- which, interestingly enough, is in the long run, this that, that whole bit from that moment to the end of the film is actually a pretty strong repudiation of Gnostic Christianity because the Gnostic, the Gnostic gospels had what was called the laughing Christ, Jesus who laughed because he wasn't actually on the cross anymore. Like it was some avatar that appeared as him or whatever. Right. And they kind of indicate that in the movie as Jesus walking away from the cross, the people are still looking at the cross. Like they're still jeering as though they're seeing something happening on that cross. And, and so the fact that Paul then basically like I invented this story to, you know, because people need the resurrected Jesus, it's sort of like that's it's sort of characterizing sort of the, the scholarly debate around the Gnostic movement and what the Gnostics were doing and how they were saying that Christ didn't actually resurrect. It appeared as though he resurrected. But either way, right, the conclusion is people need that. They need that story. They need to know that Jesus didn't remain on that cross. Right. And then ultimately, right, the movie concludes with, no, it actually played out the way the Gospels depict it. And so it winds up, like I said, becoming a pretty strong repudiation of the Gnostic, of I, Gnostic belief. Yeah, I, I love the way... Harry Dean Stanton is delivering that speech to Jesus because he's being very gentle about it. Cause you can tell he, he probably does believe that he's talking to Jesus, 
Yeah. Because he's like, he's like, I don't, because he even says, like, I don't care if you are Jesus. What I'm doing is way more important than what you've ever done, if that's, if mm-hmm. that's the case. And I just thought it was so good. And Harry Dean Stanton's so good. He's so yeah. good. Well, and I, and I love too the way that the, the way that alternate reality that, that that thing plays out is it shows that it shows that like stuff's still going to happen regardless, right? Like there's still going to be a message about Jesus out there, except in this case it'll be a lie rather than the truth, right? And then the other is is that the Romans are still going to destroy Jerusalem in the year seventy. Yeah. Um, you know it's the, you know it's still going to happen. Um, so you know it shows kind of Jesus looks in and realizes that it's. You know, it's yeah. Things are going to play out differently, just wrongly. Right, right. And so the way the whole thing concludes is Jesus is on his deathbed as an old man, and then um, is it John and Peter are kind of visiting? Peter, it's Peter, Nathaniel, and Judas. Nathaniel, right? I love Nathaniel. Yeah, because what I love because I love because the reason I know it's Nathaniel is because he says Nathaniel, you were the best shepherd because you never had any sheep. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> all along he was like i'm worried about my sheep where are my sheep turned out they were no sheep <laughs> but then yeah i love the confrontation he has with judas judas is the one that that really dresses him down well and and that's the that's the the other piece i wanted to bring up about you know we talked about the the appearances of satan yeah. but the way that god speaks to jesus in the movie it's always through like a like a disciple mm-hmm. right John the Baptist speaks to Jesus. You know, God speaks to Jesus after the temptations in the wilderness by appearing as John the Baptist just before he dies. Um, when Jesus is in the in his agony in the garden and he says, Lord, you know, take this cup from me. It's an apparition of, um, of Andrew, I think, who shows up and hands him the cup. Right. So and then um, and then at the end the truth about what's going on the, uh, is revealed to him through Judas. So I love the idea that, you know, cause Jesus at one point when he's drawing the circle in the wilderness, he says, you know, I want you to speak to me in human words, not in signs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And every, so when God does speak to him in human words, he uses humans to do it. I just think that's such a, and, it, and that to me affirms what the church is all about, that God speaks through the leaders and figures of the church. And so the conclusion is actually, this is a very orthodox film. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and so I forgot. I I completely forgot what Judas told Jesus. Aside from you know, kind of pointing out like, hey, that's not an angel. Like that's well, he says he basically says he says he says you were supposed to go to the cross. Right. That's what you told me. You were going to change everything. He says you know people are dying outside, and he says you know you've you basically you've you've changed nothing. You it's know? very apocalyptic. As he's dying, like Jerusalem is burning to the ground. Yeah, and he goes outside to just kind of watch that watch that he crawls outside yeah. just to watch the mayhem. And, yeah. and I love, and I love by the way too, that that whole, that whole extended sequence is filmed in like Roman ruins. Oh yeah. Uh, so no building is complete. Like when he goes to Mary and Martha, like it's as though they're, as though they're living in rubble. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of gives us like offness to it all. Right. It's not complete. It's not a complete vision. It's, right. you know, ah, man. And of course, and then we get, the final yeah. scene, the final shot. He says it's right. accomplished. That's and the film. And the film gets exposed, which works so well. It's great. I and, love. And then you get Peter Gabriel's Easter bells playing, so which good. I think was so great. The resurrection bells. Yeah, Peter Gabriel's music is so good. This movie, it's so it's great. Um, I love. I just I love that last shot of that movie, man. Like, 
when he says it's accomplished, the camera stays on him. Mm-hmm. And you just see, like, life leave him. And just the combination of, like, the music, which is, like, that sort of wailing music. Um, I mean, I, can't, I mean, that's, like, an understatement. It, it's, 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 it almost reminds me of, like, the music from, like, The Shining. Or 2001 A Space Odyssey when they find the, um, the monolith for the first time on the moon. Mm-hmm. And then you also, and then you have the look of Lone Defoe's face. And then you have, you know, the, 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 uh, the film basically being destroyed. The celluloid being destroyed in <laughs> the camera for being overexposed. Uh, the anecdote behind that, by the way, is that they had been shooting all day. They were finally going to get this shot. And the assistant director, was he assistant director? I think it was one of the assistant cameramen. First AC. He uh, accidentally overexposes the film as they're shooting. No, wait, oh, I thought he opened. I thought he opened. Well, that's what happens when you open the camera. It. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. open the camera and overexposes the, the, the film. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and uh, <laughs> and he was like, uh, "We just ruined the entire shot." And I know Martin Scorsese was he was just like, "Who cares? We'll figure it out." And then he saw it in the edit, and it was like, "Oh, this actually works. <laughs> like, this is actually really cool." Because it is cool. It, it reminds. It kind of reminds me a little bit. Maybe being a kind of participant. Saying, it, it reminds me a little bit of like in two thousand one Space Odyssey, when uh, 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 um, I forgot the character's name. Crap. Re goes into the monolith. And you see like brilliant colors and stuff. Because when, mm-hmm. when the film gets overexposed, it actually does have that like, kind of a beautiful effect. You know, the colors yeah. are sort of mixing and being destroyed and coming together, and then you just see white. Um, it's actually. I, I, I don't know. It's a beautiful image, especially with those bells ringing. You know, it's like right, something which, otherworldly, like he's entering heaven or something. You know, like well, and know. and and again, I think when you're not in a traditional church, you probably wouldn't recognize the fact that those are bells because yeah. the the tradition in the church is that on Easter at the when you say so, the the the, the rich liturgy of the church is called of Easter Day is called the Great Vigil of Easter. The first half of the service is done completely by candlelight when done right. And then at the end of it, at the end of that portion of the service, all the lights in the church come on and you ring a bell while the celebrant, the priest, yells um, yells uh, three times, Alleluia, Christ is risen, the Lord is risen indeed, Alleluia. The people respond with that. And everybody in the church, if you do it right, everybody in the church has bells and everybody's ringing. And then you ring the outdoor church bells to signal that the resurrection, that you're declaring the resurrection is taking place. So the fact that, that as soon as the shot goes white, Peter Gabriel's soundtrack kicks in with the sound of church bells yeah. ringing. That's like, oh, that couldn't be more clear if you know your liturgy tradition, like that that's the resurrection. So back when all my pastors, like, oh, movie ends with them on the cross. No, it doesn't. It actually ends with the resurrection. It just happens off camera, but it's it's implied, right? That's the point of it is it's supposed to tell you that you know where the story goes from here. Right. Um, you don't need to show that, I don't, I guess. But yeah, it, it's, it's, it's uh, showing that you know the the divine part of himself had had won that he'd overcome <laughs> his human nature at that point. The big payoff, right? Um, because that's that's how cinema works, and that's why it right. works over- so well. Yeah, he overcame he came overcame all the temptations. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so just give me some general thoughts. Like, is this is this like a are you are you full, are you really interested in Martin Scorsese now? Are you gonna is this like are you gonna add this like some of your top films? Like I want to know like this this, your... this I, I woke up this morning and told my wife. Unfortunately, she didn't get to watch with me last night. So I, I I woke up and I told her and I said 
this is easily one of the best films I've ever seen. Wow. Um, I am like 85% certain I'm going to buy the Criterion Blu-ray. Cool. I, I, um, I really want to as well. I want the poster. The poster is awesome. Oh, the one with the, the thorns in the red background? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, I really want the Criterion because I want to watch, you know, what extras and stuff they have about the movie. Yeah, I'd like yeah. for Kano to see it again. I mean, it's not like a movie that I'm like anxious to put back on again because, you know, it's long. It's a three-hour movie. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> So in terms of like Scorsese, right? Like, yeah, sure. I mean, he's a great director. I probably should see more of his movies. But in terms of like, I mean, this movie kind of maybe has ruined me on Jesus movies because <laughs> yeah. I really don't know what else. The other, the other Scorsese religious movie I really need to see is Silence. Yeah. I, think um, so. I haven't seen that one. The thing is, is that uh, I love the book. I've read the book several times. Um, it's, you know, from a Japanese Catholic art, uh, author, um, Shizuka Indo, which is considered one of the great novels of Japan, um, Silence. The thing is, is that it is, the book is brutal. Mm-hmm. And so I can only imagine that the movie is also brutal. Yeah. But it deals with the similar themes, because if you, I don't know if you know the story. It's, um, Jesuit it's about missionaries in yeah, Japan. Jesuit Michigan, yeah, Portuguese Jesuit missionary who is um, sent to Japan during before the Meiji Restoration, so when Japan is completely isolationist. And um, and at the time, the shogun was executing anyone who was Christian because they're trying to purge. They're trying to make sure that there was no Western influence in the land. Right, the only Christians that were allowed in Japan at the time were the were Dutch, and they could only have like a presence in um, Nagasaki. So. Um, the, this guy has gone through to like Kyushu or whatever. Anyway, the, the story goes, the Shogun finds out they're all Christians. He arrests them all. But what he's doing is he's actually torturing the villagers and letting the priests, the, the Jesuit priests sit in his cell. And he's basically telling him, if you apostatize, I'll set the, I'll set everyone free. Hmm. And so he's got this icon of Jesus and he basically says, it's called Fumi. And he says, um, you have to step on it and, you know, stomp on it and renounce your faith. And if you, you know, do that publicly, I'll let these villagers go. And so and the whole thing is this priest sitting in this cell wrestling with the fact that, you know, is it the more Christian thing to renounce his faith for the sake of these other people or should they all suffer and die? Um, and he's waiting for Jesus to appear to him. And so it's dealing with the whole spiritual silence um, in that in that moment of despair. So like, I really want to see it, but I just, I, I can only imagine it's gotta be a brutal film to watch. Yeah. Not like a cathartic movie. It's like, not like, you know, it's like putting on Schindler's list or passion of the Christ. <laughs> well, I mean the book, the novel ends with a degree of catharsis. So I would imagine okay. that the movie has it too, but, um, but you know, but it's just one of those ones where like, I just don't know. But, um, but yeah, I think though that this, that, like I said, this has ruined me on Jesus movies. I mean, I really want to see the last, the last days in the desert. Oh, yeah, um, I do too. But, um, I, it could just all be downhill from here. If we ever, if we keep doing this series. <laughs> well, maybe I, I just, I just, the thing is, is that there's so much just sort of like, what is it? Uh, Roger Ebert referred to other Jesus movies as like, as like sentimental inspirational gift cards yeah um and i think that's a pretty accurate thing right they're just they're they're, a lot of a lot of these movies are dreck right they're not you know like passion of the christ is good because there's risks involved right it was a you know it was a risky film for mel gibson to make Um, but it's a brutal film it's tough to watch um and i i don't know that it is as like cathartic and inspirational as some people want to make it out to be right um 
This movie is a tough movie to watch just because it's uncomfortable. But I think Jesus is meant to be someone who makes us uncomfortable. And I think it goes further than any other movie of showing us exactly where Jesus could be found. Right. The idea of, again, going back to Jesus sitting in a brothel Mm -hmm. watching, you know, a dozen plus men in front of him, you know, uh, have their way with a woman that he loves, you know, that that's a very spiritually accurate thing, right? We would all sort of in the abstract say like, yeah, God watches us in these, you know, watches all of us in these kind of depth, the depths of our brokenness or whatever. But then when we put it on camera, Oh, well, you can't show that. Well, why not? <laughs> yeah. It's a weird thing. And I, and I think it, it's something that I, I feel like I experienced growing up as evangelical is this like always kind of trying to tell me in a way to make it more appealing to me that like, Oh, the Bible is actually really violent. There's some really crazy things that happen in there. Oh, cool. Let's put it in the movie. No, 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 you can't. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> it's like, well, well what, what, what are we doing here? Like, I mean, are we, are we trying to be, just be comfortable? Do we want everything to be sanitized? You know, I feel like what people really want is like a Marvel version of like the gospels. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's totally what they And want. someone and probably will give that to them. They're going to be like, oh, this is the best Jesus movie. It's super clean. It's not challenging at all. You know, it's accurate. <laughs> but, you know, Same way people talk about Marvel it, movies. I will say, though, that I think, I don't think, like, The Passion of the Christ is the more recent big Jesus movie, but I don't think it has generated nearly the level of discourse that this movie has. And like Roger Ebert said, you know, he's like, this is a movie I walked away from thinking about Jesus. <laughs> right. And that's right? what and, and who Jesus was. And so it's like, how can you say that this is not a successful religious film? Because it accomplishes exactly what a religious film seeks out seeks to do, which is to get you to ask questions of this important figure and what he did. And if you believe that he's the savior of humanity, then like, you know, anything that gets you to wrestle with and ponder this right. person is is crucial that's why I, I feel sorry for Martin Scorsese because that's what he wanted he wasn't yeah. trying to like be controversial he wasn't trying to I mean, he, he says over and over again I watched a bunch of interviews he's always like I'm not trying to rattle anybody's faith I think faith is a great thing he's like I just want people to be talking <laughs> like let's yeah. and there's a nice little pa- there's a passage here um, uh, where in this book, Richard Schickel, he asks him, um, you know, did you anticipate the the the, the backlash? He's like, well, I, I thought there would be some criticism, but I didn't think it. Would, I didn't think it'd be threatened with my life. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. And he's like, it's just when it opened, when all the controversy developed, that uh, that was a nightmare. There was nothing I could say or do. I also couldn't be shaken because I believed in what I did. In the end, I think Last Temptation was out of my grasp because I naively thought. I was supposed to have taken some sort of spiritual journey with it, but it may have been the wrong material to deal with in that way, dealing with Jesus as a man, the carnality and the physicality. Um, so, I don't know, I feel bad for him because I feel like he, he tried to do one thing. He, I think he kind of feels like he didn't quite accomplish what he set out to do because of all the controversy. And that it overshadowed yeah. everything he really actually wanted to do, which is just to talk about Jesus. What I'd love to find out, I think it'd be a great, it'd be a great research project. I don't know how you'd even go about doing it, but it would be to find out like how many people have come to faith from watching The Last Temptation of Christ. It'd be interesting. Um, and make and, and wonder is it more successful than 
the supposedly evangelism tool movie that we just discussed last week. Right. Um, you know, I mean, there's probably, there's no way to really quantify that. Um, and I think that, you know, people are probably, I mean, I, I, you know, and I, I don't want to disparage the other movie in the sense that as an evangelism tool, yes, God can use it to bring people to, you know, to, 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 to Jesus. It can bring them to this, to this place that, you know, I believe is true and necessary. Um, just as much as I think this movie can be too. So I don't want to get into a thing of like one's better than the other, but I do think that, but I do want to point, I, I think it is interesting to kind of think about and point out that, um, we shouldn't dismiss this movie as an evangelism tool either. Yeah. Um, and that I think it, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I spent, I spent the past, you know, I spent the past 12 hours thinking about Jesus a lot <laughs> and not yeah, just because I'm preparing a sermon tomorrow. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really made me think about like, if we're going around saying Jesus was both God and man, you can't discount the man part. It wasn't right. just God walking around in a skin suit. You know, I feel like a lot of people sort of view Jesus as like, like if Superman came down from Krypton and like there was an asteroid headed toward Earth and like he punched it and he saved the world. And now we just have to worship him like that. And that that's how I mean, that's that's what Jesus did. Right. Like that's he saved the world. And now because of it, we worship him. Like, no, it, it right. has to be something more than just that. Right. Well, and, and the thing is, is that, you know, people would argue, you know, I think you could, you know, you could argue that this movie trades in um, the heresy of adoptionism, the idea that Jesus sort of became the son of God. Yeah. I don't know if that's accurate, but that, there's, it's definitely implied in the movie. It is. Uh, well, I mean, um, it's funny because that's basically what Paul Schrader said about the movie. Yeah. Um, which is a classic. It's a classic heresy of the church, right? But, yeah. you know, but aside from that, it, it, it really, you know, gets true to the character and person of Jesus, I think, in, in a lot of ways. Um, but what's funny is the flip side of it is, is the movies that are supposedly more orthodox that are made by Christians are actually more heretical because like you said they depict they depict the heresy of modalism this idea that jesus is like only sometimes god and only sometimes man right and like using superman's a pretty adept metaphor because you know superman as clark kent is sort of pretending at being human but his true nature is superman whereas you know jesus is both right he's somehow both clark kent and superman right and and it's you know and, and one's not an act Right. He's fully both of these people and awkward, you know, you know, not awkward, but, you know, this, you know, so like that that struggle and that complexity of who this person is. And like you said, it's got to be more than just, you know, we want Jesus to be a superhuman. Um, one of the priests early on when I was in the Episcopal Church, uh, Mother Lynn, she said in a sermon once, she said, you know, we want this powerful, strong, triumphant Jesus because it really actually allows us to feel strong, powerful and triumphant by proxy. The idea of this vulnerable person willing to suffer makes us uncomfortable because we don't want to be there too. And I think this movie actually really captures that because that's what Judas's whole thing is like throughout the conversation. It's like, wait, 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 you know, you want us to have sympathy on the Romans too? Like, hold on. Yeah. Um, oh, he even tells like that the, the big question Judas asks him is, uh, you know, what, what good will it do if you die? Like what's, what's the point of that? Yeah. You're no good to us if, if your whole reason here is to kill yourself. <laughs> right. But like he points out, right, it's all about, and then Jesus counters with the, you know, it's about spiritual liberation, not yeah. physical liberation. So good. So good. Yeah. By the way, that was not the quote I wanted to read. <laughs> oh. But I did find it. He asked him about the controversy, and he said, I thought it would open up a healthy discussion. He said, let's think about the nature of Jesus and what Jesus represents in our lives and the world and what the essence of Christianity is. 
I don't know what the answer is, but let's talk about it and look inside ourselves uh, to how we live. And I just like I, I I've I've looked online and stuff and how people react to it. And it's like, oh, Marty was just trying to drum drum up controversy. He was just trying to push the Catholic Church's buttons because he's a lapsed Catholic. He's he's said that before. Uh, but no, like, no, this was a guy who was genuinely trying to understand who Jesus was, and this was his way of doing it. Yeah, the, mo- the the one scene in the movie that to me is the most obvious, like, poke in the eye of the institutional church is when Jesus confronts the high priest yeah. after he's tearing up the temple, and he says, you know, God is not the God of Israel, he's the God of everyone. That's right, he said God isn't an Israelite. Yeah, which you, I very clearly could hear he's basically saying, like, God's not a Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That, that to me was the most obvious... Because, you know, and this is the one thing I didn't bring up at all yet in the movie, in our conversation, it's too late for it anyway, but is that there's a brilliance in making the movie somewhat ahistorical mm-hmm. that allows it to be, you know, it's not historically accurate, but it's cinematically accurate, right? Like, And so the idea that, um, that yeah, Jesus is not, you know, Jesus's primary message was to, was to reform and purify the house of Israel. So Jesus historically would not have said, I don't think, like... Because his right. his war, his issue with the he wasn't actually against the institution of the temple, and it wasn't actually against any of that stuff. He just didn't like that it had been corrupted, yeah. and he wanted to see it free from those corruptions. Um, um, you know, so but but you can tell that for somebody who's got a bit of an ang- a bit of an issue with the corruption that's happened in the you know the Catholic Church, you can see how that line in that moment is actually directed at the Catholic hierarchy. Um, which when you take it that way, it's a much more powerful when you realize that it's, again, it's not trying to be historically accurate. It's trying to be accurate to the moment in right. time, what is happening. Dramatically um, accurate. Yeah. Um, and it, so it, it works, it works. And that's also, of course, then of course, later on, Christianity is going to pick up on it and be like, yeah, God is, you know, there is no Jew or Gentile woman, woman or you know, male or female, you know, slave or free, you know, all are, all are the same under, under Christ. Yeah. Right. So, that's ultimately the message too. So, um, but anyway, yeah, really good movie. Thanks. Cool. Good. I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I would recommend that to, uh, the blockbuster customers. Yes. <laughs> I, did blockbuster carry? I feel like this actually, they been... actually the movie. They yeah. Carry I think that's one of the movies they, they refuse to, to carry. Uh, not my blockbuster though. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I ever told you about my blockbuster, the one that I worked at. It was a franchise. No, it, was like, it was a franchise you know, it was store. A non-participating location. It was a franchise store, <laughs> and a franchise store. You know, they kind of run by their own rules. They usually, they used to be a mom and pop, and they were like bought out by Blockbuster or something. I don't know, whatever. Um, but like, <laughs> people always talk about like how like corporate Blockbuster was. They never had all like the B movie titles and stuff. My Blockbuster had like. We kind of would make sure kids wouldn't wander into the middle of the store, because <laughs> the drama section, drama section, was more like the erotic thriller section. <laughs> oh, yeah. Me and my friends always knew that. We always yeah. knew that. You know what's funny is this would be you know this is maybe confessing too much, but I think I think in my early to early teen early teenage attempts at trying to see nudity on television, I wound up getting exposed to some really great independent cinema. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> nice. 
Well, uh, so go out and watch Last Temptation of Christ if you haven't. Uh, it's you can watch it on Peacock, like I did. <laughs> I rented it from Apple. Yeah, uh, I found out that uh, cannot use PayPal for uh, Amazon and whatnot, so hmm. had to watch it on Peacock with uh, commercials for The Office. But that's all right. <laughs> that's- that's fine. It's better than uh, better than better than Olive Garden. It really was Olive better Garden. than Olive Garden. You know, it, I I could deal with the commercials on this one. A Passion of the Christ, I couldn't deal with. It's too much of an emotional roller coaster. Um, but it was manageable this time around. The Deer Hunter is also available for free on Peacock, so it's like <laughs> that's gonna be. I, I kind of want to watch it, but I'm like, man, I don't know if I can watch that movie with the commercials. Holy crap! Uh, so. So, JP, what are we doing next week? Next week. Oh, my gosh. Chuck. You know what time it is? Uh, it's time. Time to get loud. Time. time. <laughs> I, I, I don't have the record. record straight. Yeah. Uh, time. Uh, record scratch. It's Music Mayhem. That's right. <sighs> music Mayhem is upon us. It starts Damn. after this. It starts next week. I can't believe it's already here. A year goes by fast. Uh, so next week, we'll be starting Music Mayhem, as per usual. And Chuck will be kicking off the oh, yes. first episode. And that means in this episode, Chuck will be telling us what his album is. Father Chuck, what it's, album have you chosen for Music Mayhem? It's, it's quite whiplash, actually. Okay. Um, I, I want to say that I picked, I picked my album probably back in December. Oh, wow. Okay, so you've been sitting on this for a while. I've been sitting on it for a while. It, this is an album that has since become among my favorites okay. uh, of all time. Um, and I, 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 I want to give just a little bit of explanation. So okay, go ahead. the journey that I went through was I realized so many times in our picks, we've, we, we've listened to a lot of dudes. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of white dudes, okay. uh, dude music. So um, I've, I've kind of committed myself to wanting to, to pick a, like a female artist. Cause I feel like, you know, it's kind of tough to talk about like hip hop as a, somewhat middle-class white kid right right um so um and so but i've also been using this as an opportunity to explore some you know music that i don't normally listen to or things that i've kind of had on a backlog so initially i was going to have us pick something from um from um the bangles because <laughs> i recently came across uh, uh uh walk like an egyptian again and i you know it's one of those songs that i remember from my childhood my mom listening to in the car and like yeah whatever but i actually like listened to it listen to it. i was like man this is actually a really good song yeah. it's like maybe i should check out their other stuff and i just don't find that the Bengals albums are all like there's a there's a couple of good singles but like as an entire album just not as doesn't really grab me doesn't really right. grab me but around that time i did find an album from a female artist from the 80s that grabbed me that i realized so many so many musicians of the hip genres that we listen to today are actually ripping her off hmm. and so that means that her sound is extremely fresh it defies convention it is different because she is so unusual and so because that's the title of the album okay. she's unusual she's unusual cindy lopper oh wow nice the Goonies. Oh, okay. Actually, you brought that up. That's another thing. I wanted to add. I wanted to add that we want. I want to listen to the album "She's Unusual" or "She's So Unusual" by Cyndi Lauper. Yeah. But I also want to tack on uh, "Goonies Are Good Enough" 
Okay. Because it was recorded on the same time as the album, but it, you know, <laughs> was on the soundtrack for Goonies, and we're never going to do like the soundtrack for Goonies as a right. music piece. So um, I, I like the song and the video. Kind of the, the the video. If you if you follow her music videos, there's like characters that that carry out through huh. different videos. Like a lot yeah. of wrestlers are in her music videos. So the, those same people show up in the Goonies, the Goonies are good enough video, as well as the cast of Goonies, as well as Steven Spielberg. So, nice. um, um, so yes, yeah, so that is what we are going to listen to next week. Find it, listen to it loud. <laughs> so you heard the man, Cindy Lauper. She's so unusual or just she's unusual. Pretty sure it's she's so. Let me let's pull, let's pull it up just to verify we get the name right. I was listening to uh, Passion by Peter Gabriel on my way over. She's so unusual. She's so unusual by Cindy Lauper. 1983. We're talking. This is a monster album, by the way. Yeah. Girls just want to have fun. Time after time. She bop. All through the night. Yeah. Wow. Some bangers. Oh, absolutely. All right. So next week we'll be starting the fifth annual. Or is it fourth annual? I don't know. Did we do Music Mayhem our first year? No. So I'm probably fourth annual, I guess. Oh. Yeah, because we did. Well, I'm trying to think of like the albums that I have picked over the years. We did uh first album was, uh, was Paul Simon's Graceland. Paul and Simon. then we did uh, Mac and then with Light Daddy. And then we did uh, Guster last year. And now, so yeah. Okay. So fourth annual. Yeah. Is that, are you sure? Let's see. Let's see. You did Green Day. Green Day. You did Fighters. Fighters. You did uh, Nirvana last year. So, yeah, fourth. Huh. Okay. All right. Well, fourth annual Music Mayhem. Join us next week. Father Chuck, thank you so much. You're welcome, sir. And uh, Willem, thank you for being here. Yeah. Uh, you did a great job, by the way. It was good. That was a good, good, good acting gig for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, join us next week. Good journey. Good journey.